Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Lee Smith. I am a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute, and uh, I thank you for joining us this afternoon at our panel. Uh, I will tell you this will be a very interesting panel, a very special panel, uh, and I think it will be uh, something like you have not seen before. We have three extremely uh, accomplished and interesting panelists. To my immediate left is Michael Duran, a colleague here at Hudson Institute. And um, I urge all of you, if you have not already read Mike's article in Mosaic magazine about the, um, about the administration's secret uh, nuclear deal with Iran. It's uh, making the rounds. It's a must-read in town and for understandable reasons. So I urge you to read it, and uh, Mr. Duran will have some interesting things to say this afternoon. Uh, to his left is Matthew Kranig, a professor at Georgetown University and also the author of A Time to Attack. Um, uh, professor Kranig knows a tremendous about, uh, amount not only about the Iranian nuclear weapons program, but about the history of proliferation over the course of uh, the last century as well. A uh, really fascinating, uh, fascinating writer, uh, fascinating thinker, and I, I, I know he'll have some wonderful things to say this afternoon. To his left is um, uh, uh, David Samuels, one of the premier journalists, narrative journalists especially of his generation, who has also written about, uh, written about nuclear issues. Um, most, uh, most startlingly was a profile for The New Yorker in 2007 about a truck driver who figured out how to reverse engineer the bombs that the United States dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, David will have some fascinating things to say as well. And again, I promise you uh, an interesting and fascinating panel. And thank you again for coming. And right now, I'm going to ask uh, Mike Duran to uh, make some introductory comments. Thanks, Lee. Uh, and thank to, thanks to all of you for coming. Uh, I think I'd like to start by uh, discussing the story that the Obama administration is telling us. Because I, I think the, the basic story that they're telling about the Iran deal is fundamentally false. Um, the, the, story, the story starts, that they tell, uh, starts with the election uh, of Hassan Rouhani uh, in Iran. And uh, supposedly that election led to a new spirit in Iran, um, uh, a, desire to, a desire to make a strategic shift, uh, to engage more with the world, to be less confrontational with the United States mm -hmm. and, uh, and the international community. Um, and that spirit then was reflected in a decision to sit down with the United States and negotiate over the, uh, um, over the um, nuclear question. Uh, the Iranians made some um, very sig supposedly <coughs> made some very significant concessions up front, um, which allowed for this uh, for the for these negotiations. Um, uh, and then uh, th the negotiations have been very fruitful. Uh, the very fact that the uh, that the Iranians have sat down with us for 18 months and negotiated is, um, is pointed to by John Kerry, among others, as, as evidence that there has been a strategic shift in the, uh, and a change on the part of the Iranians. Also, um, the administration quietly, it doesn't publicly say it so much, but quietly it suggests that um, there has been a shift by the, uh, by the, by the, uh, by the regime and that the deal itself will bring about a greater shift, uh, uh, some kind of transformation of, the, of, of Iranian behavior. They make this argument in a number of different ways. Moderates are going to be elevated over extremists, um, or uh, just, the, uh, just the give and take of a mutually beneficial, um, a mutually dependent relationship with the United States is going to change the, 
uh, is going to change the, uh, the options as understood in Tehran and moderate their behavior um, and so on. Uh, I, think that, um, I think that all of this is uh, fundamentally false, as I said. Uh, the, the negotiations have been fueled from the beginning by, by major U.S. concessions. Um, there have been Iranian concessions, to be sure, uh, but they are, uh, they pale in, con they can pale in, con in comparison to what the, the concessions that the Americans have made. And the Iranians have consistently followed, or, uh, or they have consistently pursued three major interests. One of them is to retain all of their nuclear infrastructure. The second is to lift, have the sanctions regime completely lifted. And the third is to have Iran no longer regarded as a rogue nation, to be a, a nation like, uh, uh, like any other, to get rid of the legal regime that regards them as a, um, as a, pariah, as a pariah state. We have, we have given them all of those things in substance. Um, and we're in the, uh, w with the possible exception of the, of the sanctions, um, the complete lifting of the sanctions, the, the president is talking about a phased, uh, a phased uh, lifting of the sanctions, um, but he's talking about uh, when the deal is signed, such, incredible, uh, such an incredible economic benefit to the Iranians up front that it amounts to a gutting of the, um, of the, of the sanctions legislation. The other thing is that the Iranians have been paid to negotiate. They get $700 million a month in sanctions relief uh, to negotiate. So when, when I look at this, I don't see any evidence for the case that there has been a strategic shift on the part of the, uh, of the Iranians. I, I haven't seen the administration really make that case. Um, I think that they have relied on the optics of the U.S. sitting down with the Iranians um, as itself, uh, just that, that picture after 30 years of confrontation, that picture alone kind of makes the case for the administration, and they've never been, able, they've never been forced to defend it. Uh, so uh, what I fear when I look at this and I ask, is this a good deal, is this a bad deal, I, I think, first of all, what's a good deal look like? A good deal is one that, uh, is one that if it fails, because we have to admit up front that this is a risky proposition, making a deal with the Iranians. If it fails, the United States will not be in a substantially worse position than it was before, <coughs> before we made the deal. Secondly, uh, a, a good deal is one that makes our allies in the region feel comfortable. I, and I think that, the, that this deal that, that is, uh, that's being made fails on both, those, on both those counts. Because we have paid them up front, and we are, gonna, and we are constructing a deal that is going to pay them even more, the, the most credible report about the signing bonus that they're going to receive for making the deal is $50 billion dollars. Uh, Fifty billion dollars, and then the president is going to take this to the to the United Nations Security Council, and the Security Council will will vote for the agreement, which will free up the Europeans and the Chinese and others, the Russians, to do both economic and military deals uh, with the uh, with the Iranians. So they'll get an enormous financial boost, plus their position, their status in international relations will change overnight. If the deal fails, then it will be impossible to go back to where we were. To go back to where we were, not just to go back to where we were in 2012, when we had them on the ropes, but it would be impossible to go back to where to where we are to where we are now. So we've actually incentivized them. Uh, if if they have not made a strategic shift, and I see no reason to believe that they have, we've incentivized them to sign the deal in order to pocket the 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 signing bonus, 
um, and then to go and proceed toward their uh, their their weapons capability as they um, uh, as they always have uh, as they always have in the past. And then just one more statement about the or a couple of more sentences about the uh, uh, about making the allies nervous. Uh, this has tremendously unsettled the region because while we have been negotiating this deal we have turned a blind eye to the expansion of Iranian influence throughout the, the region, which is very troubling to all of our, uh, uh, to all of our allies. Uh, the, uh, the Israelis have been most vocal about it, but what, the, what, what Benjamin Netanyahu said when he came here and, and spoke before Congress is what is felt in the hearts of all of the, uh, um, of all the U.S. allies. Some of them, like the Saudis, have been uh, more obvious in expressing their distaste and their Intervention in Yemen um, was a signal to the United States. Um, it was, of course, prompted by <coughs> events on the ground in Yemen. But it was also a way of saying, if you're not going to organize the region against the Iranians, then, um, then, then we will. Other powers, like the, uh, like the Kuwaitis, are simply hedging. They can see which, way the, which, which direction U.S. policy is going in. So they're not gonna, they, they know they can't change our policy. They know they can't stand up to the Iranians. So they're just trying to make nice with the Iranians because they realize that they are the new boss in the uh, that we are setting them up to be the new boss in the region. So there's a complete disconnect. A, a, a good deal has to be one that is integrated into a regional policy that, uh, that makes sense. The president is saying that he has a policy of containing Iran in the region, but there is no, no one, uh, I would defy anyone to do, point to an actual set of actions on the ground that, were, were, that are part of a coherent containment strategy. So, in effect, what, uh, what this nuclear deal is, is it's, a, it's, it's part and parcel of a, of a larger policy that is simply empowering Iran um, throughout the region. And that story is going to end um, very badly because it's going to lead to uh, uh, not to the equilibrium that the president is talking about, but to disequilibrium. Thank you. Mike, thanks. That's terrific. I'm going to ask you to come back later uh, when we're... I'm going to throw after water you've, at After you've thrown <laughs> water at everyone. Um, Don't you I'm dare ask, disagree I'm with ask me. You. Yes, I'm going to ask you to come back around and talk a little bit about, um, about Yemen because I think, there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of mistaken assumptions about what's been happening in Yemen, about the, uh, about the administration's role. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to come back later and put that in terms of the administration's... Uh, regional policy. So okay. thanks very much. Uh, Matt, if you would like to uh, follow up. Great. Uh, well, thank you, Lee. It's a pleasure to be back here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming out and spending your lunch with us. Uh, the, the question of the proposed panel is, what's wrong with the Iran nuclear deal? Uh, and I think a lot of people have been tackling this question, kind of looking at the details. Um, will we get access to military sites? Uh, will, will Iran get sanctions relief up front? How will we work out the sanctions relief? Uh, and I actually think all those details are, are really irrelevant. Uh, because I think what's wrong with the, the nuclear deal is, is bigger than that. And it's simply that we're allowing Iran to enrich and legitimating Iran's enrichment program uh, in the first place. Uh, so I'll take the next five or ten minutes to, to make this point, um, and I'll make uh, kind of three supporting arguments. Uh, so the first is that the United States has always had a, a, a pretty strong um, preference, if not policy, toward prohibiting the spread of enrichment and reprocessing technologies to any country. Um, so many of you who understand nuclear issues probably already know this, but the United States has essentially drawn a line between peaceful nuclear technology, which is research reactors, power reactors, um, and the ability to make fuel for those reactors. Uh, so having the reactors was fine, but making the fuel, enriching uranium or reprocessing plutonium, 
uh, was a problem because once you can make the fuel, you can make fuel for either nuclear reactors but also for nuclear weapons. Uh, so going all the way back to 1946 uh, with the McMahon Act, uh, the United States Congress made it illegal to cooperate on these technologies with any country, uh, including our closest allies like Britain and Canada, who had just been helping us years before on the Manhattan Project. Um, <coughs> fast forward a little bit to the 1970s, the uh, Indian nuclear test in 1974. Um, the United States, Henry Kissinger, set up this nuclear suppliers group, which got uh, some of the advanced nuclear powers together and essentially set up a cartel to prohibit the, the, and restrict the transfer of enrichment and reprocessing uh, to any country. Um, and when, when those controls failed, the United States has gone on the offense to try to stop countries from doing this stuff, even our close allies. So in the 1970s, South Korea uh, and Taiwan, uh, both uh, allies, were trying to reprocess plutonium. Uh, and we put a lot of pressure on them, forced them to shut those programs down. One Taiwanese scientist afterwards said, uh, when the United States got through with us, I'm, I'm surprised we're allowed to still teach physics on Taiwan. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, the United States has negotiated with uh, rogue nations over nuclear programs in the past. So we can think of the successful Libya nuclear deal in 2003. Uh, we can think of the, the failed uh, series of failed deals with North Korea, starting with the agreed framework in 1994. But those deals had uh, one thing in common. They, they prohibited enrichment and reprocessing. Uh, we weren't uh, bargaining over how much enrichment, how much reprocessing. Uh, that was taken for granted that those things wouldn't be allowed. So when Iran started uh, enriching in 2003, the United States' response was, was simple. It was based on past policy. Uh, enrichment in Iran will not be tolerated. Uh, so that was our policy for over a decade. Uh, we got six UN Security Council resolutions saying that Iran should suspend enrichment. Um, and I actually, uh, for another reason, was going back and I read President Obama's, well then, candidate Obama's foreign affairs article in 2007 when he was making the case um, for his presidency. And um, early on in the article, he said that as president, he will, quote, stop Iran's uranium enrichment program. So he didn't say he would keep Iran from the bomb. He said he would stop its enrichment program. Uh, and so we've come a long way from that now. This, what this deal does is accept and legitimate Iran's enrichment program, allows it to keep 6,000 centrifuges, um, and uh, we're calling it a comprehensive deal. Um, so we've, we've really climbed down. Um, a long way from this bipartisan non-proliferation standard. Uh, second point is, um, it, I don't think it solves the problem it's intended to solve in Iran. Um, by leaving Iran so close to a nuclear weapons uh, threshold capability, I think it makes it um, more likely after a deal than before a deal that Iran uh, eventually gets nuclear weapons or we're forced to take uh, other actions to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons. And the metaphor I sometimes use is, uh, speaking to my students, I'm a professor at Georgetown University, uh, is um, you know, think that the concern is that Iran will speed, that it's in a car, it might go over 60 miles an hour. And so the way we've always dealt with this problem is to say, you can't even have a car. You know, you can, you can, you can, somebody can drive you, um, you know, to get an Uber, uh, have a bicycle, um, take the metro, uh, but you can't have a car. And what this deal does instead is essentially say, okay, you can have a car, you can be on the racetrack, uh, and you can go 35 miles an hour, but you can't go 36 miles an hour. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're letting them get pretty close to, to what we're trying to prevent. And so the problem with that, of, of course, is, first of all, it's hard to, to monitor and, and verify. Uh, if they don't have a car at all, it's, it's easy to tell when they're trying to buy a car, when they're getting into the car. If they don't have enrichment at all, it's pretty easy to tell if they're trying to procure uh, components on the international marketplace and uh, other things. But if you allow them to have this program so close, uh, verifying violations is very difficult. And then if they decide to step on the gas and you know, go from 35 to 60, 
um, there's very little we can do at that point to, to intervene and, and stop them. Uh, so I think it uh, makes it hard to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons. And moreover, it, it legitimates the program. Uh, if Iran is going to enrich, it would be much better for them to enrich under UN Security Council uh, resolutions saying that this is a violation, under international opprobrium, under international sanctions. Uh, instead, what the deal does is give them a clean bill of health and say it's fine for Iran to have this uh, nuclear weapons break, breakout capability. Uh, in addition, it, it sets a bad precedent. Uh, so the United States has uh, towed this, this tough no enrichment, no reprocessing line for a long time, including with, with allies. Um, but once we make an exception for Iran, uh, a country that's essentially a U.S. enemy, a country that's violated its nonproliferation commitments in the past, then it becomes very difficult to go to other countries and say, you know, we trust Iran with uranium enrichment technology, but we don't trust you. Uh, so already uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates have said whatever rights and capabilities Iran gets, we want the exact same. Uh, and so I'm, I'm afraid that what this is going to do is set a precedent. Other countries are going to try to same, claim similar technologies that's going to lead to a further spread of nuclear weapons and weaken the nonproliferation regime. A third and final point is I think there is an alternative to this deal. Uh, so that's an argument that supporters often make is, well, it's this deal or war, uh, so this deal is, is better. Uh, and that's clearly not the case. Uh, so uh, going back a few years, you know, we had this red line of no enrichment in Iran. Uh, the Supreme Leader also set his red lines. The Supreme Leader has said, I won't dismantle a single enrichment facility. Uh, I'm, well, first of all, I, I will enrich and we won't close a single facility. And what we've seen over the past couple of years is we've caved on our red lines and the Supreme Leader has kept his. Uh, so we've gotten this deal because we've moved towards the Supreme Leader's position. Uh, but there was no reason we had to do that. We're in the stronger position and we need to recognize that. Uh, Iran is the country that's violating uh, international law. Iran is the one that has multiple UN Security Council resolutions against it. Iran is the country whose economy nearly collapsed because of these sanctions. Iran is the country whose nuclear program would be a pile of gravel tomorrow morning if the president uh, changed his mind on, on the use of, of military force. Uh, so we're holding all the cards. Uh, there was no reason for us to cave. So if the president had simply said, you know, your supreme leader has red lines, that's great. I have red lines too. My red line is enrichment. Uh, enrichment's uh, not allowed. Uh, and so we'd given the Iranians a choice. So you can keep enriching, but it's going to mean continued international isolation, continued sanctions, and if that all fails, military strikes on your uh, nuclear facilities. Or you can give up enrichment. You can have a, a big peaceful nuclear energy program. You can have uh, the sanctions lifted. You can have whatever other, other kind of goodies you want um, and no enrichment. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that eventually Iran would have uh, caved. Um, and, you know, there's no way to know that for certain, but at a minimum we should test it. There's no reason to cave for this weak deal now. Uh, so I think I'll end my remarks there and look forward to your questions and comments. Matt, thanks very much. That's terrific. <clears throat> I just want to point out that um, the, the, history, the history that you tell, uh, that, we, that this is the first time we've acknowledged someone else's right to enrich like this, I think that puts in context also what Mike was saying before about the Iranians being paid to negotiate. Once we've given them something as big as acknowledging their right to enrich, every concession after that effectively becomes a payment um, for them to continue sitting at the table. So thanks to you both. David, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to follow up. Um, yes, and I want to underline two words uh, that Matthew used, which were bipartisan consensus. Uh, I, unlike many of you, uh, 
I'm a writer. I'm a journalist. I'm not involved in partisan politics. I've generally considered myself to be a liberal Democrat. Um, these principles, historically, um, are non-controversial ones. Uh, they've been embraced by every American administration since World War II. Um, to find them being undone uh, in this very rapid way, uh, given the potential consequences of unchecked uh, nuclear proliferation, not just in the region, uh, but also in Asia, um, is and should be a terrifying thing uh, for Americans to contemplate. Whatever their feelings about this president or Republicans or Democrats, um, as someone who has reported in and around uh, questions relating to uh, nuclear programs and gray market uh, economies, I am startled by the lack of attention uh, and clarity uh, that uh, is, you know, obvious in the way these stories are being reported. Um, and I was intending to open with two uh, pleasantries which are not uh, disconnected from the body of what I want to say. Um, the first is that it's a pleasure to be here at the Hudson Institute. Um, and it's a pleasure because the Hudson Institute was founded by Herman Kahn. Um, and Herman Kahn was, of course, uh, a master of what my uh, friend uh, Edward Lutwak uh, <clears throat> calls the paradoxical logic of strategic uh, thinking. Um, Kahn's work, as I'm sure many of you know, was extraordinarily important um, in guiding the United States uh, through the very real dangers of the Cold War, uh, which culturally we seem to be uh, forgetting. Um, and that work, in turn, uh, was founded, of course, on the uh, work of John von Neumann and others um, in game theory uh, and related uh, fields. That logic was once something that American policymakers and the people who wrote about them understood. Um, it was part of their common uh, language. Uh, that language seems foreign now. Uh, to public uh, discussion, and that's a shame. Um, the second pleasantry that I wanted to offer was that it's great to be here in Washington. Uh, one of the reasons why I like Washington um, is that the number of people involved in broadly what's now called the media has doubled here um, in the last uh, five to 10 years. Um, it's 
really the only city in which that's true uh, in America. Uh, a recent study by the Pew uh, Foundation estimated that a total of uh, 50,000 jobs uh, have been lost in the uh, American press um, in the last 10 years. Uh, I can tell you as someone who made my living uh, in this field exclusively uh, for the last 25 years that 50,000 people is rather a lot. Um, it's probably about half the reporting capacity that the U.S. public <clears throat> has access to. Um, what happens uh, to a democratic society um, when you decide to do away uh, with the institutions of a free press? Because that is the decision that without knowing it, uh, our country has made. Um, I had a lunch uh, last fall with a, a person named Jeb Bush. And um, over the course of that lunch, he raised a funny question. He, he looked at me and he said, um, well, uh, do you know why um, companies like Amazon and uh, Facebook uh, are not subject to antitrust legislation? And I said, no. <laughs> do you? And he said, no. <laughs> I, I, I think it's strange. And I said, I, I agree with you. <laughs> now, I bring this up not to uh, make fun of Jeb Bush. Uh, in fact, I bring it up to praise him because it is the only time uh, that I've heard a leading American politician of either party uh, even raise this question. Um, the question at least occurred to him. I think we are having what is a very, very consequential debate right now uh, about not a specific deal and not the Obama administration, but and, and not just American posture in the Middle East. Who do we wish to ally ourselves with? How friendly do we want to really be with Saudi Arabia? Is Iran really that bad? All of these questions pale next to the prospect of unchecked nuclear proliferation in a world where the United States has decided that it will no longer enforce the very, very basic structures that we set in place after World War II in order to prevent the horror of a world in which many, many states, some of them led by people whose perceptions of reality depart from our own in very significant ways, are armed with weapons whose capacity to kill hundreds of thousands of people and to destroy if used in great numbers, the most basic functioning of not just individual societies, but of large chunks of the global system that feeds and provides basic security to billions 
of human beings on the planet. This is a terrifying, terrifying prospect. And that's what's at stake in this deal. And the inability of people to recognize that that is what we are talking about is in part tied to the institutional collapse of the uh, structures in which I spent a good deal of my own life working. Um, I don't think it's because of venality or greed or political partisanship on this person's part or that person's part. There is a much larger collapse that is affecting our ability as a society to understand uh, the questions that are uh, before us. And that's what I want to say. David, thank you. That's terrific. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to try to, uh, actually, I, I, I do believe there is a common thread coming out. I'm going to make it as banal as possible. But um, look, this deal represents that something significant is changing. Uh, you put it in terms of, uh, I, I know that you and I have talked about this before, in terms of the structure that... Uh, is part of our Cold War legacy. And part of the reason we don't recognize this is because, of, uh, is because the structures of the media are changing. Uh, Matt, you were saying that this is, in 70 years of American policy, we have never allowed this to happen before. Uh, and Mike, you're talking about how, uh, well, we've talked about this before, strategic realignment, why the United States seems to, uh, or why the Obama administration seems to be pointed toward another direction. So actually, I'm just going to ask us, uh, or ask you guys, rather, to talk about this. And actually, Matt, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, if you can just say, look, I know it's hard to do the uh, psychology or sociology of the administration, but why? Why have we changed? Why in 70 years? Why, if, as you said, the president, uh, then candidate Obama said, yeah, I'm not going to allow them to enrich. Um, what happened? Uh, well, uh, first thing I guess I, I, I would point out is, you know, I ma made the argument in uh, the opening statement, so let me work in some of the nuance. I mean, there are uh, other countries in, in the world that enrich, uh, but this has never been something that the United States uh, has supported, and over time we've gotten uh, tougher about, about enforcing this. Um, so what is unprecedented about the Iran deal, though, is a, is a country of proliferation uh, concern, uh, a, a country that's hostile to the United States, uh, and rather than sticking to this no enrichment, no reprocessing um, point of view, we're, we're willing to, to haggle over it and, and to allow them to have a program. Again, that's not something we're willing to do with Libya, with uh, North Korea, and even with uh, our allies in the past when we, when we had uh, the ability to do something about it. Uh, so what's changed? I mean, I, th I think the argument the administration would, would make for this is, I think it's focused on the specific case and not thinking broadly about the precedent it's setting and, and what it means for the future of nonproliferation. Uh, and I think they um, understand that um, if Iran's program continues to advance, that we might face this choice of living with a nuclear-armed Iran, which would be bad, I think we can all agree, uh, or taking military action, uh, which is uh, also bad but less bad than uh, nuclear-armed Iran. I think uh, most reasonable people agree on that. Uh, and I think they badly want to avoid those outcomes. And so they say that no deal is better than a bad deal, but I'm not sure that they believe it. I think that any deal that allows them to avoid making this tough choice between living with a nuclear-armed Iran or striking uh, is, is good for them, uh, or that, that's how they perceive it. So I think that's what's uh, driving it, a sense that there are even worse outcomes out there, and so a bad deal is, is better than no deal. I see. Um, Mike, I was going to ask you, 
I mean, I believe we've talked about this, that the deal on the Iranian nuclear program is only one part of the conversation <clears throat> between the United States and Iran. If you can, if, if you'd like, if you can fill that in a little bit more. Because again, where I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about now and say what is different. Why is this, uh, why is the conversation that um, all of us here in this room are having, why, is, why could this have not happened five, ten years ago? Um, uh, I'll definitely answer that. Can, can I just oh, yeah, add sure a footnote yeah. to something David said? Yeah, yeah please do. Because um, it struck me, um, perhaps it struck many of you, um, that the response to the Kissinger-Schultz op-ed, recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, wasn't what I thought it would be. Uh, when, I, when I read that op-ed, um, which I'm sure everybody here has read, I thought it was just devastating to the administration. Mm-hmm. And, and all the more devastating for, for containing no adjectives just uh, uh, for containing no average and, and not attacking the administration, just raising questions and um, and very methodically going through all the holes that they saw in it, uh, and then to have two um, distinguished secretaries of state raise these issues, and then the the, the spokeswoman for the uh, State Department said, you know, it contains a lot of, of big words and big ideas, but I don't see anything else in it. Right. Right. And <laughs> I, I, I don't think in an in a, I don't think that ten years ago. When we had a more vibrant, um, a more self, um, uh, self-confident press, that that would have gone by mm-hmm. with as little with as little uh, impact as it had. Now, I I do believe that that was a very important op-ed, and I do believe it had a lot of an, a lot of impact. But I think in an earlier era, that would have that would have driven a very very consequential discussion for at least a couple of weeks, and and the administration would have been roundly criticized for that response to it. Um, but with, with regard to what you're saying, you know, Matt, Matt just said that they um, that the real position of the administration is that a bad deal is better than no deal, um, and I agree with that. I, uh, in in my view, the 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 administration has very cleverly convinced um, much of the world and even a lot of its critics uh, uh, that it is engaged in an arms control. Agreement that its strategic goal is to achieve an arms control agreement, um, and I don't think that that's actually how the president sees it. I think the president sees the arms control agreement as a vehicle for uh, achieving détente with Iran. Um, that's the strategic goal. It is, it, it is in his eyes, détente with Iran that is going to moderate them in the nuclear field. It's détente with, with Iran that is going to pay dividends in the um, in the region. He looks at this region. Um, he sees it as um, a huge mess. Um, he sees the, uh, the the defining experience of his uh, life with respect to Middle East policy is the the Iraq War, um, repeating the the folly of the of uh, George W. Bush's Iraq War as the president sees it um, is the thing to be avoided at all costs. He wants to pull the United States back from the Middle East, end wars, and uh, uh, and spend much less time and effort and resources in. Uh, in managing the region, so the minute you have to, the minute you decide you're going to pull the United States back, uh, it leads inevitably. There's a logic train here that's just uh, that's 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 inevitable, um, which and it, it leads to the first thing: uh, no more, no more containment of Iran, because containment of Iran forces you to be very very concerned about the structures on the ground and uh, uh, and building them up. And, it, and then it's a, it potentially sucks the United States back into the kind of conflict with, uh, with Iraq 
um, uh, in, in Iraq that we had. And in fact, it was in Iraq that I think he first started um, uh, realizing, if he hadn't already, he, could, he might have already, but it, but it was certainly in the context of the status of forces agreement um, that he began to think of Iran as a potential uh, force for stability mm -hmm. in the region. Uh, he was confident that he could pull the forces out of Iraq because there, there would be other forces on the ground that would, would keep Iraq stable enough that it would, be, that it would allow the United States to, to play a role as a kind of offshore, um, offshore balancer. Uh, the only force that could do that is Iran. Uh, not, that was never said. The president has never said it. But anybody who's, anybody who's, done, uh, who's looked closely at Iraq policy over the last decade knows just how influential Iran is in Iraq. Um, and so there had to be a calculation that we can pull back because Iran will take care of business. And, uh, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing, in, uh, we're seeing um, a de facto alignment uh, with Iran in Iraq. You saw it clearly in the case of Tikrit, where U.S. air power, uh, US air power drove the Islamic State out, and then Iranian-backed militias came in and took over on the ground. You see a similar process at work in Syria. In Yemen... In Yemen, Ir Iran isn't seen as the essential pillar, but you, you, ask, you ask about Yemen before. Um, the, the U.S. Put, uh, put warships in the Gulf of Aden um, uh, uh, and uh, made, a, uh, uh, made a dramatic display of flexing muscles, but what it was actually doing in the diplomacy was bringing Iran into the diplomacy against the wills of, will of the Saudis um, and forcing the Saudis to negotiate with the Iranians. Um, and in fact, in some ways, negotiating with the Iranians over the heads of the, of the, um, uh, of the Saudis. So uh, in many ways, and, and certainly in certain arenas, and possibly throughout the whole region, the president is now seeing Iran as his primary interlocutor, and everybody else is second, including Israel, including Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> David, uh, Mike tells an interesting story. It's an interesting story about the administration, how it sees the Middle East. You tell stories. It's what you do for a living. Can you convince, I mean, how can we be convinced, how can our audience be convinced that the story that we're telling about the administration, how it looks at the Middle East, about the nuclear weapons deal, I, I mean, what are the points that we need to, uh, to really hit on to say this is not just a story, we're not making this up, it's not a biography of the president's uh, Middle East view, it's a real thing? Um... I think, you know, as I suggested in my opening remarks, that there's been a uh, real failure to frame uh, the stakes of this deal, uh, what it means not just for American Mideast policy, but for America's global posture and what the effect uh, on these structures uh, that we've built over 70 years to enforce a relatively uh, successful um, regime of non-proliferation, the success of that regime being judged by the fact that no one has used nuclear weapons uh, since we did it. Um, that is something that we take for granted now. I'm suggesting that there's nothing inevitable uh, about that. That happened because we did <clears throat> specific things and we backed the things that we wanted uh, to do up with very, very significant uh, 
applications of political and economic uh, pressure and through credible uh, threats of force. Uh, that didn't happen by magic. I think that the belief that we can take our hand off that wheel and see what happens um, if we uh, <laughs> experiment with a world in which we throw out all this Cold War uh, blather um, and just let people kind of do what they want with these technologies and weapons, that doesn't seem like an experiment that's likely to end well uh, for humans. Um, except that's the experiment that we may be embarking on now. And so the first question is a question of framing. I think that all of these debates over how many centrifuges will be allowed uh, to continue operating in Fordo and what they'll be allowed to reprocess have, ex have accepted a framing um, that uh, makes it more and more likely for people to simply dismiss uh, what they're hearing and go back to whatever their normal partisan uh, alignment is. Why? Because, Why? because it's too complicated. Because it's very complicated and what's the worst thing that could happen? <laughs> Actually, the worst thing that can happen here is something very, very bad. Um, <laughs> that's the first thing. Now, there's two other things, and I think that the uh, administration's use of language uh, is, is very important, and there are specific uh, phrases which I see again and again. Um, I know I've, uh, you know, I question whether these phrases are being used, uh, you know, out of, ignorance or whether they are uh, deliberately uh, framed, and I think the answer is probably it depends who's using them. Um, I wanted to focus on two of those phrases uh, today because they're both very important. Um, the first is one that the president and uh, people around him have been using repeatedly uh, in the past few weeks, which is snapback. <laughs> snapback. Now, snapback, this is a thing. Um, that we're being told is going to be built in to any deal. So if we catch Iran violating the terms, if there are terms written down for this um, uh, deal, we're going to have this mechanism called snapback in which we can immediately reapply the sanctions regime that we uh, dismantled. And this sounds, when you hear it, and if you don't know anything, really about these mechanisms and what they actually consist of like a plausible and reasonable thing. Well, what happens if you uh, catch them violating the deal because those Iranians, they're, they're sneaky, maybe they have bad intentions? Well, that's no problem. We'll snap back the sanctions that we have and then we haven't really uh, lost anything. Um, as someone who's spent a lot of time uh, in different uh, reporting endeavors involving gray and black market goods, I can assure you that there is no such thing uh, as snapback sanctions. Uh, if you look at the history of, having, of how sanctions are actually applied, assuming that everyone's agreed on what the sanction is and what it should look like, what follows after that is an incredibly arduous, on-the-ground, process country by country, port by port, street by street, agency by agency, 
inside countries that are not necessarily immediately willing to do what you want in order to shut down front companies, banks, to install safeguards at ports, um, to fire people who sell uh, licenses <laughs> um, at specific ports. This is a global endeavor that takes years. It takes years to get a sanctions regime to work. Um, and they don't work perfectly. All you do with a sanctions regime, as you know, I don't know how many of you know, have, have any of you ever bought anything illegal? <laughs> well, let's see a show of hands. <laughs> well, if you have bought something illegal, whatever that is, I'm not going to ask. Um, you know that, in fact, things that are illegal are available. You can still buy them. What happens when you make something illegal? Well, you raise the cost of that good. You can get um, a nice bottle of whiskey um, in you know, Saudi Arabia. It's not really a big problem. Uh, it's just a little bit of a pain in the ass, and it costs three times as much as that bottle of whiskey does uh, in New York. Uh, but it's the same whiskey. Uh, sanctions regimes work the same way. They are financial penalties that target particular areas of endeavor. Fine. You want to buy rotary <laughs> blades that can be used in certain kinds of uh, industrial processes that may be related to uranium. Uh, you can't fill out a purchase order for that and buy them from the companies that make them in Switzerland. You're going to have to go through a whole rigmarole where you're going to find some rogue South African guy who has a metal shop and stole some equipment, and he's not even going to be able to make you those blades. He's going to be able to give you parts of machinery that you may or may not be able to use to make those blades, and that process is going to end up taking a lot of time, and each of those blades is now going to cost you 10 times what it would have cost you before and you've raised the possibility that maybe they're not made as well as they could have been. <laughs> and maybe your machines won't work all that well. And so what this is is basically a tax. And it is a tax that doesn't make it impossible. <laughs> it just makes it very, very costly. And you know, certainly anyone who's looked at the efforts of uh, AQ Khan uh, to set up uh, his uh, con network, uh, which successfully, uh, you know, gave Pakistan the ability to uh, manufacture nuclear weapons. Um, that effort was something that took a logistical genius <laughs> um, a great deal of time and cost a great deal uh, of money. Um, I, this is this is interesting. Actually, I wanted to. I wanted to ask you something about this, and actually I wanted to ask Matt about this too. You and I have talked about this, um, uh, and, and Matt, I believe you and I have as well. Why has it taken the Iranians so long to get this far? Why, why 25 years? If, if you would talk about that for a second, then Matt, I'm going to ask you as well. Okay, and this relates to the second little phrase that I wanted okay. to, uh, to air out, which is you can't bomb knowledge. Um, <laughs> The short answer to that one is, of course you can. Um, but it also mistakes in a significant way um, what is hard. But, but, but before about, that, I just, just want to make clear that David Samuels has the plans 
for a nuclear weapon. I do. Uh, and I um, have the knowledge myself um, at home in my desk. And so we're, we're establishing um, a campaign of deterrence <laughs> to keep him, his, him and his family from using the bomb. <laughs> so we're going to turn and contain right. you. Um, no. Why, the, why do you have it in your at home in your drawer? You have the, I the have, plans I, for a nuclear weapon. I have plans weapon? for a working nuclear device. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do given to me by my truck driver, and the head of the uh, Los Alamos Nuclear Laboratory actually uh, looked over the plans and said that they are actually... But, I mean, it really does go to the point, though, that you can't... Look, if you have it, uh, if you have it, seriously, if you have knowledge it is own, not right. Knowledge is not the hard part. And this question of why, did it why has it taken Iran 25 years uh, to still not be able... Now, we don't know... And I think it's a very interesting question. We don't know how much of the North Korean nuclear program is actually part of the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, it's a very significant question. How much of their program is now off-site, meaning not physically located uh, in Iran? Um, and the, but the, to, to return to the question of why 25 years? The short answer is because it's very hard. And the slightly longer answer is that there are two kinds. There's a meaningful distinction that can be made uh, between indigenous, an indigenous nuclear program and a non-indigenous nuclear program, right? If Germany tomorrow were to decide that it had a pressing need for a, you know, 10 or 12 nuclear bombs, Germany could, in a crash program, probably create those devices for itself in three months or less. Why? Because Germany is a fully industrialized state with all of the capacities and technologies needed in a nuclear program already there, and the only thing it would have to do is arrange those blocks in a particular order, and they would have bombs. Japan, a country where I have spent some time, it is not a huge secret among people who are familiar with uh, the Japanese nuclear program that Japan does have a program. Uh, Japan is not a nuclear state. They do not have nuclear weapons. However, there is a program by which Japan, if it felt itself to be under some form of imminent nation threat um, would be able to assemble uh, nuclear weapons from components uh, that it has produced. Um, these are among the not very well kept secrets uh, of the nuclear world. So now you know them too. Yeah. I, I just want to get get Matt's, yep. Matt's take on on this too. Yeah. Um, so I, I agree uh, with David, one, that it's very hard. Um, you, you may have heard that um, when the Iranians were first trying to enrich uranium, uh, they were having problems with their centrifuges spinning out of control and crashing on the ground. Um, so spinning, you have to spin these centrifuges at, at the speed of sound, which obviously getting a, a metal cylinder to spin at the speed of sound is, is difficult. Uh, and what, what they figured out is that uh, they had been handling the centrifuges with their bare hands, and just the oil from, from human <laughs> hands were enough to, to throw them off. Uh, so they figured out they had to, to wear special gloves. So I think a lot of it is the technical <laughs> challenge. Um, which, 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 which not insignificantly is something that someone in Germany 
um, would have thought of before they turned it on. Right. Probably. No, no, no. I, 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 that, that, that is very interesting. Um, so, the, so the technical uh, part is difficult, but I think there's also been uh, political reasons why, why Iran has, has moderated its program over the years. Uh, so the only time Iran has been willing to uh, put curbs on the program has been when its back uh, was against the wall. So in 2003, it stopped its uh, uranium program for a while. Uh, in, in large part, we believe, because the United States had just invaded Iraq and Iran was afraid that it might be next uh, and that pursuing WMD was, was the way you got on the Pentagon's uh, target list. Uh, and so they stopped in 2003. Uh, and then um, over the past 16 months, as we've talked about, they've been willing to come to the table. They've been willing to uh, put some curbs, not, not meaningful uh, curbs really in, in my view, but some curbs on their, on their nuclear program over the past 16 months, in part because their economy uh, was nearing collapse because of, of the sanctions. So I think what that shows is that when their back is against the wall, they are willing to make concessions. Uh, so I think that also, also undermines the administration's argument that there are no alternatives. I think if we return to the pressure track, uh, we can uh, bring enough pressure to bear to where they would be willing to, to put more curbs on the program. Um, and just one final point on this. Um, so, so it is difficult. It has taken them a long time. Uh, but they're basically there now. Um, you know, in order to build nuclear weapons, Iran needs to get the fissile material. It needs to be able to form it into a nuclear device. And then it needs to be able to deliver that to an opponent. But really, all that matters is the first stage. Uh, because once they have the material, the game's really over. Um, right now, we can strike the enrichment facilities to prevent them from enriching uranium. Uh, but once they have significant quantities of highly enriched uranium, they can take that material and move it anywhere. We wouldn't necessarily know where it is. It could be beyond the reach of our best bunker-busting weapons. So at that point, our non-proliferation policy would become praying that they don't weaponize, uh, which isn't a good, good place to be in. Uh, so the, the key is to stop them from producing one bomb's worth of highly enriched uranium. And the best estimates are now that if, if the Supreme Leader made the decision to dash to a nuclear weapons capability, that he would be there in about two to three months. Uh, and with this deal, if, if we get this joint comprehensive plan of action, a final deal, uh, all that does is, according to the administration's estimates, uh, extend that breakout time to 12 months. Uh, but some outside experts who um, have looked at the same problem have come up with shorter estimates. Uh, Ali Heinonen, uh, who had formerly worked at the International Atomic Energy Agency on the Iran file, uh, estimates that even with the final deal in place, that Iran's breakout time would be eight months. Uh, so uh, Iran is, is very close. Uh, so some people say, well, Iran's been two or three years away from a bomb for, for decades. Uh, why should we worry about it? Uh, I think some of those estimates in the past were, were bad estimates. <laughs> but um, we know a lot about Iran's program now, and, and they are uh, very close. Uh, and uh, so I think uh, we have a problem, and, and we need to do something about it. Um, I, I just I wanted to move on to, to one. Go ahead very quickly if you want to follow up. But I, I have a... I have a big, abstract, conceptual question I want to yeah. run by you all. Um, very quickly, I wanted to say that th the significance of the distinction between what we can call an indigenous nuclear program and a non-indigenous nuclear program, right? The difference between a Germany or a Japan or a country like Iran or a country like Pakistan, which has assembled a nuclear program really through uh, logistics uh, moving components um, and the ability to make certain kinds of components uh, into their country and then being able to assemble those things correctly, uh, the difference is whether or not the program is replicable, right? Um, Germany can make a bomb because all of the knowledge and all of the many, 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 many industrial components and subsets are already there. If you've gained a significant proportion of those things 
by having them smuggled into your country, that's not a reflection of your ability to build all of those things on your own. That's a reflection of your ability to fill out fake bills of lading um, and hide things in, you know, say that they're washing machines. Um, I'm not very sure where the estimates of, well, if we attacked Iran's nuclear program, it would only set them back two or three years anyway. Therefore, that's not a reasonable thing to think about. Mm. I think that it's just as likely that a real set of strikes on the stuff that it's taken Iran 20 years to be able to physically assemble is simply something that's not replicable for them at all. I always like to hear someone make the case for striking the Iranian nuclear facilities. So thank you. Um, I'm not making that case. I'm just saying. I'm saying. I'm just saying. I'm saying it is. It is a very strange <laughs> thing as a reporter to right. hear these no, things right. being, you know, given this common currency and common sure, wisdom, and, no, and no actually they don't that. make much right, sense. This doesn't make sense. If it's, that's yeah. kind of what I was getting at with the question. If it's taken 25 years or something like that to get to where they are now, why is the why is the common wisdom that, well, at best, the best case scenario, we can only set them back a couple years? And I've spoken with Matt about that as well. Both Matt and David uh, disagree from different angles, but for excellent reasons. Um, the question that I want to ask is, because another thing that I'm hearing is, uh, in different ways, you're, what you're saying is, what all of you are saying in different ways is, the Cold War is over, right? So Obama is, thank goodness, he has the... Uh, the opportunity and the perspective to lead us away from some of these Cold War policies, whether this was uh, the embargo with Cuba, whether this was 36 years of hostility with the Islamic Republic, we don't need these anymore. And when you're talking about 70 years of uh, proliferation policies, like the world has changed. It's different. No one's going to say it's easy, but it's a different place. We don't need the Saudis and the Israelis the same way that we did in the Cold War. Maybe the Iranians are a better bet right now. So maybe we are the ones who are resisting and saying this is a this is a, the problem is ours, right? Why why is the problem why is the problem the administration's worldview and not ours who are resisting being ushered out of the Cold War era and into something new and granted difficult but maybe better? Mike, if you would, yeah, I was gonna. Well, I would just look at um, I would just look at what they say their goals are, and then what they say the means that they are using to achieve those goals. And when you look at it under a microscope, you see that you're not going to get there from here. Uh, we're not going to stop Iran with this deal. Uh, we're another argument in, in terms of the regional breakout that concerns me. Another argument that is being made on behalf of the administration, and I think the administration believes this, although it doesn't say it is that Iran is our de facto ally against uh, Sunni radicalism um, and that we, you know, they're, they're helping us fight the Islamic State. I think that that is, um, uh, I think that's a completely erroneous view of how the Middle East works. I think it's a completely erroneous view of what's driving the, uh, the recruitment and the, uh, of the Islamic State and its ability to hold on to territory. Um, and without going into great detail, and we've talked about this on other, other panels, uh, but the, um, when, when the Sunnis of Iraq, who are not supportive of the Islamic State, 
see the United States help Iran effectively take Tikrit, and then they see Shiite militias that are rapacious sectarian actors that are going to kill every military-age Sunni male that they come across. When they see that, they, uh, they immediately recoil from the United States. They recoil from the Iraqi government, and they certainly recoil from those Shiite militias <coughs> and from Iran. Um, and so by, by, that, by that operation in Tikrit, we made the ability of, uh, of uh, forces sympathetic to us to take Mosul and hold it that much harder <laughs> because every military-aged Sunni male in Iraq is going to fight for Mosul, and they'll fight side by side with the Islamic State because the, uh, as bad as the Islamic State is, the alternative is much worse. So, in, you know, simply put, we're alienating all the Sunnis of the Middle East, and they are the majority of the, pop, uh, uh, of the population there. Um, and, and we're doing it while we're saying that we're aligning with Iran that's going to help us with, with, with ISIS. Right. It's simply, it's not going to work. So if our goal of doing this is to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, I mean, Matt has explained to us that that's probably unlikely. Um, if, it's, if our goal for doing this is that it's going to help us stabilize the Middle East, it's not going to help us stabilize the Middle East. What if it's not about stabilizing the Middle East, though? We've talk- not that it's trying to create uh, chaos in the Middle East, but what if a lot of... Look, we have talked about this before, I think, on other panels as well. How much of this is theater um, and how much of it is policy? Theater? Theater with, with, to what audience, you mean? I think the, in lots of ways to a domestic audience. Well, I think, these th- are, I think there's look, a... Look, we're worried about the Islamic State, so we're going to wage a campaign against them right. on the ground in Iraq. And I think a lot of people would say, this campaign actually hasn't been very serious. Another part of the theater is, and this is kind of what David is getting at when he's talking about how the media is covering this, another part of the theater is, yes, we're going to stop Iran from getting a bomb. And that's why we're sitting down, and the only only (coughs) alternative to this deal, which you may think is bad, is war, and that's much worse, right? I mean, there's a lot of of messaging. So how much of this is... How much of this is messaging and how much of it is real strategy? Well, oh, there's, 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 no doubt, there's no doubt that a large segment of <coughs> our population is responding to the messages of the, of the administration, not on the basis of a kind of rational uh, um, analysis of what's going on in the Middle East, but simply in terms of, uh, of their, uh, their domestic uh, um, affinities. So, I mean, uh, the, one of the arguments that the president is making is that um, the neocon George W. Bush approach to the Middle East failed. We have to try something new, right? And say, let's try something new. And so so that, uh, that immediately has a kind of common sense. These, um, uh, another, another thing that you, another argument you hear similar is, well, what's your solution? <laughs> Right? What's your, how are you going to solve Syria, you smart guy? Right? And, well, you know, the answer is, sorry, I'm not going to solve Syria. Right? I'm not going to solve Syria. I'm just saying that the, uh, I'm saying let's have, a very clear, let's have a very clear definition of what U.S. vital interests are. Uh, let's have a very clear definition of what the greatest threats to us are. And let's have policies with respect to Syria that minimize those, that, that minimize those threats. And I personally, I'm with, uh, with David and I presume with Matt as well, that a nuclear-armed Iran, um, a nuclear-armed Iran is, a, is the number one strategic threat that we have in, in, uh, in the region. And we, have to take, and we have to exert ourselves greatly to prevent that. The second thing I want to do is I want to defeat the Islamic State. 
And, and, and in order to do that, I have to have Sunni allies. An alignment with Iran doesn't allow me to, doesn't, doesn't allow me to de destroy this. Now, I recognize, you know, that for a, a lot of the people uh, I I who are not following the Middle East closely, um, it is, you know, when, when, when we're talking about centrifuges, is it 1,000 centrifuges, is it 6,104, and so on, it is like listening to a couple that are having a divorce, right? And when they come to you and they start, you, know, you don't know what he did to me, he did this, and then she comes and, he, and then he comes and says, you don't know what she did, she did this, and, and you look at that and you just go, oh, please, I can't, I can't sort that, I can't, I, I can't sort that out. And so you just pick the one that you're more sympathetic, you're, you're more sympathetic with. So... Uh, you know, for a, a lot of people are listening to this like a divorce, and they say, well, you know, I like Obama better than those neocon crazy guys. But the, the neocon crazy guys are reading the Middle East more clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, if you would, um, I, I, I agree, I agree. Um, <laughs> Matt, if you would, um, look, how dangerous is, um, not in terms of, as, as, as Mike framed it, is in, in terms of a divorcing couple, <laughs> how many centrifuges, but how dangerous is a uh, is a nuclear is a nuclear Iran? How much of a threat is that to American to American uh, interest? And not just we've talked about this a bit before. Not just in the region, not just uh, our regional interest, but but here at home as well. Yeah. Well, I think a, a nuclear Iran would pose a grave threat to to U.S. interest, and I don't think there's really much disagreement on that. I mean, that's something the administration uh, says as well. Um, President Obama has spoken at length at, at some of the risk posed by a nuclear armed Iran. Um, so a nuclear armed Iran, I think, would lead to further proliferation of nuclear weapons in the region. I don't think it would stop with a nuclear armed Iran. I think other countries would try to get nuclear weapons in response. Uh, second, a nuclear armed Iran would be more aggressive. Uh, we know that Iran restrains its uh, foreign policy now because it fears that if it goes too far, it might uh, trigger an attack from Israel or from the United States. Uh, but with nuclear weapons, that could kind of serve as a shield that allows it to step up its support to terrorist and proxy groups to get, engage a more aggressive course of diplomacy in the region basically taking steps to become the most dominant state in the region, uh, which is what Iran's leaders have said they want to do for some time. Uh, and then uh, third, I think there's a real risk of nuclear war. And I don't think Iran's leaders are crazy, but if you have a nuclear-armed Iran and nuclear-armed Israel, potentially other nuclear-armed states in the region in the future, uh, there are going to be political conflicts of interest. There are going to be high-stakes crises. Uh, and in those kind of situations, there's always the risk that things could spin out of control. Uh, so a nuclear-armed Iran, I think, does pose an existential threat to Israel. I don't think Israel's leaders are uh, exaggerating when they say that. Uh, a couple of Iranian nuclear weapons on Israel could mean uh, the end of the state of Israel. And uh, once Iran has uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles capable of reaching the east coast of the United States, a U.S. future U.S.-Iranian crisis could mean a nuclear attack on the U.S. homeland. Uh, Iran's working on ICBMs. Um, the director of the Missile Defense Agency, U.S. Missile Defense Agency, said just a few weeks ago, uh, that Iran could have uh, an ICBM capable of reaching the United States by the end of this year. Uh, now, many people uh, dispute that and, and um, say they're further away, but, but that's what a uh, U.S. official has said recently. So I think this is uh, a major threat, and, and we do need to do whatever it takes to stop Iran from building nuclear weapons. Um, going back to your uh, previous point, if I could, about sure. um, what's, what's different now yeah, yeah, between yeah, the Cold I, War. I did want to, yeah. Um, good. So I think the... Uh, one of the things the administration thinks is different now is that nuclear weapons are less relevant than right. they used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so President Obama has uh, stated this vision of a world without nuclear weapons, uh, which is, uh, in my view, uh, a little naive. But, but I do think that the president believes it. And I think it's one reason that he is concerned about a nuclear-armed Iran. I think that he understands that if Iran gets nuclear weapons, other countries might get nuclear weapons in response. That's deeply antithetical to this idea of a world without right. nuclear weapons. Um, 
But on the other hand, I think he also badly wants to avoid starting a war uh, against Iran and, or, or having to be, be forced in the point of choosing between letting Iran have nuclear weapons or conduct airstrikes. Uh, and so I think maybe a few years ago, uh, the administration thought that they would really solve the Iranian nuclear uh, problem. Right. I, I think now their, their best hope is to just uh, pass this on to their, to their successor. Uh, and so I think that's what a deal does. I don't think it solves the problem. I don't think it keeps Iran from building nuclear weapons. But assuming we get it, assuming Iran abides by it, at least initially, uh, I think it does mean that um, Iran probably doesn't acquire nuclear weapons before January 2017. But um, it leaves a, a hell of a problem for the next president. Um, do you, I, I wanted to ask uh, David something quickly because I want to open up for a question or two, but you wanted to follow up and then just I one, just sure. one, Just two sentences okay. in response to what Matt says. Um, I'm not 100% convinced that the president thinks a nuclear-armed Iran is a really big problem. Okay. Right? I, I just want to state that. No. And he has always said it, and, um, uh, and he may well, it, may well be, it may well be the case that he thinks that. But it's worth noting that a very large percentage of, uh, of, of people in the policy establishment in Washington, if asked this question, what is the, what is the worst outcome? What is the, what, what is the worst outcome? A war to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon or Iran getting a nuclear weapon, they would say a war to stop Iran yes. getting a nuclear weapon is the worst, is, is the worst right. outcome. Um, and uh, Fareed Zakaria, j just a couple of years ago, said uh, uh, whom, whom the president has cited as somebody who has a lot of influence on his thinking, or, or, or vice versa. Okay. Yeah. It goes, it, like yeah. you know in a friendship, it goes yeah. both ways. If you think that Fareed Zakaria's column sometimes reflects in your thinking, that's possible. Is that how he's plagiarizing? Yeah. Shush, 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 stop, 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 stop. So anyway, the, uh, the, uh, um, the, uh, the, the Fareed Zakaria, uh, he said this, that it's, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and that we can live with it just like we live with the Russian bomb and the Chinese bomb and so on. And I think when he said that, he was reflecting the thoughts of many people in this town. They don't say it out loud because it is politically unacceptable on the Hill, and they know it will be politically self-defeating if they, if they said it. But the, president is, the president's thoughts in many respects are completely consistent with people who think this way. So I don't think it's outrageous. I don't think it's outrageous to say that he may himself entertain these thoughts. Obviously, he's never said them. I can't prove it and so on, but I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Um, uh, did you want to did, did yeah. follow up on that? Uh, just follow up on that, but also I want you to keep in mind the, the question that I kind of kicked off this section with was like, so what's different now? And more specifically, are we, actually, are we still in the Cold War when we're talking about a polynuclear Middle East? Or is it something different? Is it less dangerous, less relevant? Um, I think but, that, but also, again, if you do leave us a couple of minutes, because yeah, I want to ask a... Yeah, so, make some so quickly, it. it's been 25 years since the American political establishment had to think seriously um, about nuclear weapons. Um, all of the questions that they have answered in the last 25 years have been relatively small-bore questions like, how do you get the silly Ukrainians to give up all those Russian weapons that they have? Or let's sign this deal with the North Koreans and maybe it will work or maybe it won't. That, all of those questions were a far cry um, and very, very little comparative intellectual heft or political heft was devoted to those questions 
uh, when you compare them with the big uh, life or death Cold War questions uh, involving a nuclear armed Soviet Union, Soviet Union and China. <clears throat> Our ability conceptually to grapple with those questions has very, very badly decayed. Um, as a culture, we're not used to thinking about those things anymore. We don't have people who are highly placed who are paid to think about those questions. That kind of knowledge um, is not at the premium that it once was. Um, I think that very shortly, this is the, one of the ironies of this administration may well be that a president who came into office um, talking about a nuclear-free planet is going to be responsible for the greatest surge of nuclear proliferation um, that we've seen you know, in half a century or more. Um, you're looking not only at these very alarming reports about the pace at which the North Koreans uh, have been making uh, bombs. Was that an article in the Wall Street Journal? Yeah. Uh, you're also going to be looking at an Iranian nuclear program, a Saudi nuclear program. You're going to be looking at one or more nuclear programs in Asia. We will have set a precedent that we are not willing to stop those things. We're certainly not willing to use force uh, to stop those things. And we will have a planet where it's not just a question of will the Russians use it or will the Chinese use it, or will the Indians use it, you're going to have a multiplication of actors and conflicts. And I think that strategically that problem uh, is going to be a much harder problem than gaming out how do you deter the Soviet Union. <laughs> um, and I think that it's a problem that we all better start uh, thinking about again. Thank you. Uh, so I'm going to open it up and see if uh, there are any questions. Do we have a microphone? Um, Maury? Actually, I, actually I, 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 want, I want Maury to, to go first. Can you come down here, please? Thanks. Maury, can you identify yourself? Thanks. Um, Maury Amate, identified with a number of organizations. Uh, looking ahead, 21 months, has anyone done any analysis of what the inevitable Hillary would, might do, which is different than the current president faced with the situation, assuming there's no cataclysmic event uh, before then. Do, do you mean regarding the, the, the regarding negotiations, the regional? Regarding the uh, nu nu a nuclear Iran region, right. uh, how she might yeah. be di differ from the current okay. administration. Thanks. Mike, do you want to take a stab at that? Um, I saw the uh, I saw uh, the statement by Haim Saban on Israeli television, uh, which you probably saw as well, uh, that uh, where he strongly suggested that she has a secret um, uh, policy that is hostile to um, uh, Obama's emergent deal. Um, he said that uh, he, that she's uh, very concerned about the safety of the state of Israel and uh, and. Um, uh, and then the uh, and the, he tells her things that 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 make he he who is now a critic of the president's policy he said he she tells him things that that make him feel a lot better um, and uh, but behind closed doors and then the then the, uh, the correspondent the, the correspondent the correspondent asked her asked him to, to to give greater details and he said I just did uh, so that was that was uh, that's that is all we know she she's reported to have a secret anti um, uh, anti Iran. Um, uh, uh, Anti-Obama policy. Uh, she herself has bought herself until until June 30th. 
Uh, she put out a, um, a statement that was supportive of the president until June 30th. Sort of wait, I'm, I'm heartened by the direction of things. Let's wait and see. Um, uh, one of the most important things that those of us who think it's a bad deal can do, I think, is influence her um, to, to, to come out. Even if she, even if she were just to, just to say, uh, like James Baker did, James Baker, who has also been very supportive of the deal in general, but James Baker wrote that op-ed last week in which, he, in which he said, ah, I'm seeing some things that are making me nervous, and if these continue, then it's, then, then it's not a good deal. Even if she did that, it would be very, um, it'd be very valuable because, uh, because then a lot of people, a lot of Democrats on the Hill, uh, in the expectation that she might be president, and knowing that President Obama is a lame duck president, they would start gravitating toward her like metal filings to a magnet. Um, so she could open up a space for... Um, uh, for greater questioning and criticism on the Democratic side if she did it. But, but it, the simple answer to your question is, I don't think we really know anything about what, about what she's really thinking, and, unless you believe that Haim Saban knows something we don't. <laughs> uh, can you come up, this gentleman over here in the corner? Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Uh, Daryl Kimball, Arms Control Association. Uh, there are a lot of things that were said about the, the nuclear negotiations that I would take issue with, but I just want to focus in on something that Matt was saying about uh, your assertion that there is an alternative to uh, the existing agreement uh, or the agreement that's being still being negotiated, <laughs> and that would be to, um, to test the Iranians to see if they would accept a zero enrichment program. Um, it, you seem to have forgotten that that was tested, uh, even with a very tough sanctions regime in place after 2010. Uh, the Iranians were uh, being called upon to uh, halt enrichment uh, since 2006 uh, by the UN Security Council. Since then, they increased the number of centrifuges from a couple hundred to 20,000 today. Uh, since 2010, they've doubled that number. It was about 10,000 in, in 2010. So, you know, it, it seems rather implausible to suggest that they're going to capitulate after all that time not having capitulated. I'm now, sorry, just I would like them. I know, I know, but it's quickly, important thanks. clarification in this moment. I mean, what we is going to answer it. I just want you to ask us the questions. Okay. We can get so to my that. question is, how long do you think uh, we should test such a proposition by, I suppose, walking away from the negotiation, and how quickly? And we can. This is an engineering analysis and a political analysis. How long do you think it would be before the Iranians would have? A capability that would allow them to amass enough missile material for one bomb. Uh, I think it would be down from two to three months to a few weeks or days. So I'm just not sure that that scenario is realistic. And, Matt, and do you want to address yeah, that? Then sure. Mike wants to follow um, up with a quick yeah. response. Uh, so as you pointed out, the the real yeah. pressure uh, wasn't put on Iran until till really 2012 with the EU oil embargo and and kicking them out of the banking uh, system. Uh, and then only a, about a year later, they're willing to come to the, to the table and, and start negotiations. Uh, and we started to, to let off the pressure um, with uh, the, the minimal sanctions relief that we provided as part of the, uh, the JPOA. Uh, so I think we let, let them up too early. I think if we had continued on that uh, track question, with, you, yeah. Well, uh, so um, 
you know, so it would depend on how they develop their uh, nuclear program. If they decided to, to dash to a nuclear weapons capability, as I said before, we think they're two to three months. I think more likely is they would go to the pattern of nuclear development we saw before 2013, where they slowly uh, build up their program and, and try not to, to blatantly violate red lines that might uh, invite an attack. And so some of the estimates I've seen there is that it would take a year or so for them to get to the kind of undetectable breakout uh, scenario. And so I think what we'd have to do is um, bring additional pressure to bear through sanctions, uh, but make it clear that if they cross these real red lines for us, that we are prepared to use military force. Uh, and I think uh, if we do that, that it's unlikely that they would actually cross those red lines. Uh, and so essentially, we'd, we'd be playing a game of chicken then. Uh, who's, who's going to swerve first? Are we going to come off our red line of no enrichment? Or are they going to come off of theirs? And given that all the uh, cards are, are in our hand, I think it's likely that they would swerve uh, first. Um, I, think it's, uh, I think if we show leadership and, and work with them and explain the rationale that we can uh, get our allies on board. I, 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 th I just think it's interesting the way that you're asking the question, the way you keep coming back, because the alternative must necessarily lead to, I keep telling you, this is as good as it's going to get. And that is the way the administration phrases it, and the administration is giving away the better part of negotiations by virtue of that, by indicating there is no way we're ever going to use military force, and we keep telling you... Mike, do you want to go ahead? No, no, go ahead, go ahead, we'll, we'll get another. Uh, can we ask this gentleman up here? It's a very, been a very interesting discussion. It reminds me that nobody in Hollywood, whether writing for Hitchcock or writing for Rod Serling, could write a script from what you were talking about this morning or describing what's going on in the Middle East. David is working on that right. script. <laughs> uh, Charlie Krautheimer wrote this morning, that this country is enabling Iran. It's lifted it from a pretty low position to our level. We are the strongest country in the world, militarily, economically, wherever you want. Why have we done that? Are we so ignorant, so, so naive? Uh, why are we willing to sacrifice Saudi Arabia, Israel, other countries in the region, for this two-bit country, which is a rogue regime, <laughs> which is a Shiite regime, and if you look at their platform, we're gonna dominate the world. Are we so ignorant in this case? Well, I'm going to ask David to answer that as our, as our closing <laughs> moment. But I, I just wanted to say that, it's, that I, I hope you weren't using Shed regime disparagingly. There's nothing wrong with... This is it's, it's not a sectarian audience. And the United States is not a government that believes in parceling things out in terms of sectarianism. So it's a, it's a, it's a revolutionary regime has that and a problematic regime for the United States. But rogue is fine. Rogue is fine. David, would you would you like to would you like to try to find a way to, sure. to address the? Um, I think that the I think two things that Michael said earlier are worth uh, highlighting in this area. Uh, the first is the suspicion um, that lots of people in the administration, and I'd say in Washington more broadly, do not see a nuclear-armed Iran as the worst thing uh, that could happen in the world. Uh, there's a tendency to see nuclear weapons now as symbols of national pride uh, or achievement. There has been a falling away in general of our sense that these are real weapons uh, that have catastrophic effects when they're used. Um, 
And I think that that frame for analysis is a very dangerous one, and I think it's become very common. Um, I think the second thing that Michael said that's worth uh, highlighting is that, uh, and I'd say that this consensus goes well beyond the Obama administration in Washington now, the idea of another quote-unquote war uh, in the Middle East is seen as the ultimate thing that American policy must avoid at all costs. And Matthew's answer, while you know uh, a responsible one, was also a little evasive on that point um, because the point that any person who doesn't want to look crazy in this present debate has to stop short of is saying that it is possible to imagine a military strike on Iranian nuclear facilities. The paradoxical logic of strategy will tell you that if you are incapable of imagining that, then there is no way to succeed in these negotiations. Either that is on the table or it's not. If it's not on the table, then you may as well sign whatever agreement that's, is that's there to be signed. That's what I mean, signed. we get into this logic where it's and, like, and this because, is the because, best deal. Now, that's not saying that one should. And, and the administration, you've watched them many, many times try to faint and say, well, we are willing, and it's still on the table, and we will use it, except, of course, we won't, because we're not crazy. And that's not really a credible threat of the use of force. Now, the most recent example of... U.S. military intervention in the region uh, is the war in Iraq. I think Michael and I probably differ about that war. I think that war was a disaster for the United States, and I think it was a disaster for the region. However, that's hardly the only use of military force that the United States has ever attempted in the Middle East. There was the first Iraq war. I don't think anyone looks at that and says, that was the great disaster for American policy in the region. And I don't think anyone looks at Bill Clinton's uh, operation, what was it called, Desert Fox, was yes. it called, the 97, yeah. right? Which, which people presented here at the time as a wag the, you know, wag the tail, wag the dog uh, exercise to cover up the Monica Lewinsky scandal or whatever it was, but which turns out in retrospect to have had a relatively significant uh, effect on existing, still existing components of their WMD uh, program. And so... This town is uniquely focused on one metaphor, uh, one uh, example uh, of what uh, American force in the region uh, looks like. It's a particularly disastrous example. I don't think that example is particularly applicable here. I don't think anyone's talking uh, about a you know, land invasion of Iran and occupying it and trying to spread democracy through American uh, force of arms uh, to Iran. That all sounds insane to everybody. Um, and so the inability to get past that metaphor is also a huge, huge problem. Um, that's what I'd say. Thanks. Um, that is going to uh, bring the panel to a close this afternoon. I want to thank the three of you, and I want to thank you all for coming. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.